Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, while walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of Book Riot can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter code BR3. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Friday, April 26th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I am sleepy but ready to talk about nonfiction. How are you? Excellent. I'm also... A little bit sleepy. It's been it's been kind of a week, but uh, excited to be talking with you. Uh, I'm also excited. We're recording this on Friday night, um, but a, a fun, exciting day is happening tomorrow for us, Saturday, which is Independent Bookstore Day, and this is a big thing that is celebrated the last Saturday in April, uh, where independent bookstores have deals. And um, in the Twin Cities, in the past, they've done like an independent bookstore map, so you can pick one up, and then it has all these indie bookstores in the Twin Cities area on it and you can go to different ones and like I don't remember if they like collect stamps and then you get a prize if you go to so many or whatever but it's a super like fun exciting day so unfortunately by the time people listen to this podcast they will have it will have passed already but put it on your calendar for next year do you have plans for for the weekend I do so if it snows in Chicago I will go to a bookstore that is close to my apartment and if it doesn't then there's a giant book sale at um Open Books is a nonprofit kind of literacy program that also has a bookstore entirely made of donated books and so they're like cheaper and then the books at like this warehouse sale it's like even cheaper than that so um I really want to go so I'm hoping the weather holds out but yeah otherwise um indie bookstore for bookstore day and since you will be all listening to this after Indie Bookstore Day, if you want to see like people's hauls or like what different bookstores have been posting, you can check out the hashtag, like hashtag Bookstore Day, and there should probably, I'm assuming, be some great photos. Yes, that is an excellent recommendation. Uh, I want to come to Chicago and come to that bookstore because that sounds really fun. Yeah. I mean, you're invited, obviously. <laughs> Um, I have two uh, bookish pieces of follow-up, books that I mentioned in previous episodes that I have now actually finished reading or gotten more of a chance to read that I want to 
kind of second my own recommendation for, I guess. So the first book was one I think that was on the last episode of the podcast, which is Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Anawachi. And this is a memoir about a young black chef and his kind of growing up and getting into the restaurant business and his experiences being black in an industry that has a lot of casual and explicit racism uh, built into it. Um, And I finished that one and it is so great. Like it was just interesting and frank and honest and he's got like this kind of like confidence and charisma that just like exudes from the page and is really fun. And the book ends right at, I don't, it's not a spoiler because he kind of talks about it in the intro, but he, uh, it ends with this, um, he opens a restaurant in DC and it, it does not go well. Uh, And so the book ends after he's sort of like recovering from this really pretty epic uh, failure, like his first failure really as a adult human. And it's kind of about thinking about what he's going to do next. And that's where the memoir ends. And so I finished it and I was like, I want to know what happened next. Like, what is this guy doing now? Um, And there was a really great profile in the New York Times kind of about him and his kind of rise from that, uh, I would say maybe epic fail. And I I really like that too. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, But yeah, Notes from a Young Black Chef was uh, really great. And so definitely recommended. Um, And then the other book that at the time I had not gotten a chance to look at at all, but since I have started to read thanks to my local library, uh, is Good Talk, a Memoir and Conversations by Mira Jacob. Uh, And this was an illustrated graphic memoir about American identity, interracial families, and the realities that divide us. Um, and I checked it out from the library as an ebook, and it is so cool. Um, it has every page is sort of like this full color. Some of them are photos, some of them are illustrations, I think, some are maps. And then it has laid on to that these black and white sketches of the people who are talking and having conversations with each other. And so it's got this really cool, like double layer, and it's very like visually appealing. And it's all about like difficult conversations that this mixed race family is having. And so um, there, there's, there's some funny questions. There's some really deep and difficult questions that her young son is asking her. And she is trying to kind of explain through the story of their family. Um, and it is awesome. I'm really excited about it. And I'm enjoying it so far. So uh, good talk and memoir and conversations by Mira Jacob, also previously mentioned and further recommended. I'm so glad that you really enjoyed those. I know. That's nice. Um, I, of course, told you beforehand that I demand to talk about my trip last weekend to St. Louis. Yes, I want to hear about it. (laughs) Because I went to see My Favorite Murder live, um, the podcast, for the fourth time, I think. So I saw them twice in Chicago. Uh, I drove with some friends to see them in Madison. And yeah, so this is the fourth. A group of seven of us went to see them. It's a five-hour drive from Chicago. Did you take a van? We no, we we were in two cars, um, oh, darn. which I think was maybe a, a good thing. I don't know. I just I don't know how fun vans are. Are they are they a good time? They're not. I just like the idea of you like road tripping in a van made me laugh. But I think the cars were probably better. Oh gosh, um, yeah. Especially if it was like we got one of those like long like church vans. Yeah, yeah. Maybe those have like TVs. Anyway, so. I love My Favorite Murder. It's such a fun podcast. Well, I mean, fun, you know, is an interesting word to use with like true crime comedy podcasts, but there's a comedy element, obviously. So, but uh, they did a great job. I'm hoping they release it as one of their like live episode releases. Um, I think that both of the stories really interesting. One of them was terrifically sad, but uh, not going to spoil it for people who weren't there. And yeah. Oh, and we went to the city museum, which was fun. That sounds excellent. That sounds like a good time. So our other sponsor for today is TBR, Book Riot's new subscription service offering recommendations for readers of all stripes. 
Uh, TBR is basically if you want a stitch fix for books, then it is here. Voila. You tell TBR about your reading preferences, what you're looking for, and then our bibliologists handpick recommendations just for you. So you're like, hey, I know I like this type of book, this type of book. And they're like, great, awesome. I have read a million things. I will find options for you. So they offer plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email. So there's an option for every budget. And if you visit mytbr.co to sign up, it is a super fun website with pigeons on it. So in order to understand (laughs) why there are pigeons, and of course, to get your tailored book recommendations, visit mytbr.co. Excellent. That sounds fun. Um, I haven't gotten to do that, but I like I want to sign up for it, but I have so many books that like, I'm super torn. But uh, everyone who does the recommendations is super smart. So anyway, um, after that, we will move into our first segment of this week and most weeks, every week, I think, uh, which is new books, which are books coming out recently or within the last few weeks, month, whatever, that we are excited about and interested in. So um, Alice, yours is up first. Oh, it is. So my first pick is The Regency Years, during which Jane Austen writes, Napoleon fights, Byron makes love, and Britain becomes modern by Robert Morrison. It's out April 30th from W.W. Norton. This immediately appealed to me. Um, I feel like why might be clear if you listen to this with any kind of regularity. (laughs) So... The Regency era is 1811 to 1820. It is famously associated with Jane Austen because um, a lot of her books were kind of published and she became popular during that time. And the Prince Regent was a fan of hers, so she dedicated one of her books to him. But it's also like this – It's so it's this short period and everyone talks about the Victorian era, but the Regency era is like fascinating. So the Regent himself is this really colorful kind of – terrible but also interest i don't know he's he's a murky figure in a way like i feel like it's hard to get a handle i don't know how i feel about him so you got the prince regent but then you also have the arts like happening with again austin lord byron the shelleys i don't know who john constable is yet but the description talks about him and i'm excited to find out so there was also like all of this science happening which again is not my wheelhouse which is why i'm excited about this book So this uh, was when the steam locomotive came about, the blueprint for the modern computer, right? Because like we have, um, I think Charles Babbage is starting to work around that time. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, though, you've got uh, the beginnings of the novel Frankenstein. It was first published in 1818. So like right before the end of the Regency era. Oh, Kim, you love Frankenstein. I do. And the British military is in foreign lands. The The Napoleonic Wars are happening during this time, right? So England is like, fighting Napoleon. And then also all this other stuff is happening at the exact same time. It's a crazy nine years. So if you want to read about that, which you should, it was <laughs> real fun. Check out The Regency Years by Robert Morrison. Uh, that definitely does sound like an Alice book. Uh, if I was walking, <laughs> I would be like, ah, Alice would enjoy this. And also that has an amazing subtitle. Yeah, it's real good. Just like the way that it like rolls up. No, that's a good one. Yeah. All right. So my first book is one that I think equally like someone might look at and be like, I imagine Kim would be into that book because it's like just right on the edge of like weird stuff that I love hearing about. So uh, the book is called Beeline, What Spelling Bees Reveal About Generation Generation Z's New Path to Success by Shalani Shankar. Um, And this is a book by an anthropologist who spent a bunch of years 
watching the National Spelling Bee and interviewing participants and their parents and their families. Um, And she uses all this research she did about the National Spelling Bee as a way to look specifically at what the kids of Generation Z are like or might be coming of age in. Um, and so Generation Z, for those who don't know, including me, before I read this book, is kids born after 1997. So these are like people who are like kiddish now, like maybe like late elementary school tween-ish. Um, so anyway, she looks at the National Spe- the Spelling Bee as a lens to look at these kids. And so she um, looks at like what competition is like for Gen Z kids. Uh, she looks at uh, careers, like these children who are competitors have these like almost careers trying to participate and what that means. Um, and she also looks at how Generation Z kids as a whole have, in general, greater participation in entrepreneurial activities and social media as children. And so she is just looking at all of these different parts of a Gen Z childhood. Um, and because she is a parent of Gen Z kids, she also looks at um, the kinds of questions that these parents are having to answer as they're starting to raise their kids in this totally new environment. Like, what role does competition play? What role do screens and social media play for my kids? What What is the impact of immigration and immigrant parents on the families that my kid is interacting with and, or is a part of? And so it's just, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, I have to say it's not, I was... So the reason that it caught my attention is because I was like, I would definitely want to read a book about like behind the scenes at the National Spelling Bee, right? Like that just sounds so weird and interesting to me. Um, So the book doesn't have quite as much Spelling Bee narrative drama as I was hoping that it would. Like I was wanting like a play-by-play behind the scenes of like one of the rounds of the Spelling Bee or something. And maybe that's coming. But at this point, she's really just using stories about the kids and their parents who are competing in the Bee to try and talk about kind of these bigger topics around Generation Z. Um, And it's obviously a pretty limited sample, right? Because like a kid who's going to be successful at the National Spelling Bee is like a very particular type of kid. Um, But it's still, I think she's drawing some interesting conclusions that she can then kind of tie back to some of her own anecdotal experiences as a parent. So um, interesting so far. I'm excited to k- keep reading it. And so the book is Beeline, What Spelling Bees Reveal About Generation Z's New Path to Success by Shalani Shankar. So when I was like nine, my mom would drive me to the local paper the day that the list of spelling bee words came out so that I could pick it up <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> My greatest achievement was fourth place in the regional spelling bee. So nothing like these brilliant children of today. But um, I got out on carotid. I'm still mad about it. Oh, man. I got out of my elementary school spelling bee on extraordinary. That's got tricky like letters in it. I put too many letters in the middle, but ever since I have been so paranoid about that word. Uh, when I was, this is a stupid story, but uh, when I was in newspapers, we did a special section for the paper about extraordinary citizens, and so we had the word extraordinary in this section everywhere, and I like. I just had this like palpitations the whole time we were putting it together because I was like, I'm gonna spell this wrong. I'm gonna spell this wrong. I don't think I did, but man, it was it was rough. What spelling bee words have traumatized you? You can message us on social media. Alice <laughs> time and Kim the Dork. Um oh, I also wanted to point out that there is a a documentary called Breaking the Bee, mm. which is about how since 1999, 19 of the last 23 winners of the National Spelling Bee have been Indian American and kind of like talking about their culture and like why this is sort of happening and how it's like this point of pride um, for the Indian American community. And I watched the trailer and it looks awesome. Just saying. 
my next pick, I kind of stuck with the history theme this week. I leaned real hard into my favorite. But I'm also going to France next month, and this ties into that trip. So my pick is The Da Vinci Legacy, How an Elusive 16th Century Artist Became a Global Pop Icon by Jean-Pierre Isbou and Christopher Brown. Now, at first you might say, Alice, Leonardo da Vinci is from Italy. You said you're going to France. Right. Okay. So two things. One, obviously the Mona Lisa is in the Louvre. I don't totally understand yet the importance of the Mona Lisa, but the rest of this book will probably tell me something about that. Two, Leonardo da Vinci went to the Loire Valley when he was old because he was brought there by like a patron and because he wasn't making enough money in Italy. So there's like a whole thing where it's like the staircase in this castle in the Loire Valley might have been designed by Leonardo da Vinci and he like loved that area and all this stuff. Okay, anyway. So basically, Leonardo da Vinci, compared to people like Michelangelo, Raphael, other Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, did not do very much in terms of actual creation of art, like, because he was such a perfectionist and, like, wanted everything to be amazing. So even, like, in his own time, like, he was definitely recognized, but other people were kind of better. So the point of this book is how did he achieve this, you know, like, height of fame and uh, general just sort of, like, renown? But he brought with him, um, I think, three works to France. One of them was the Mona Lisa. So he knew at the time that this was like a very valuable work that he wanted to keep with him. And this book kind of goes into the fame of like the Last Supper and like it's the one of the most visited artworks in the world. It has the book has all of these like beautiful color images and there's a tie-in series on PBS. So you can like get the book and then also like watch the series and then be like, I know everything about Leonardo da Vinci and why he is now famous. So uh, again, that is The Da Vinci Legacy by Jean-Pierre Isbou and Christopher Brown. That sounds so nerdy. <laughs> when you said a tie-in PBS special, I was like, wow, nerd alert. But also that sounds awesome. I thought you were gonna be like, that sounds so great. And then <laughs> just went a different direction. No, it sounds like great, like nerdy in a good way. Like that is exciting to me. Oh, great. Okay. All right. So my second pick is Magical Realism for Nonbelievers, a memoir of finding family by Annika Fajardo. Uh, and this is a book about a young woman who, when she is in her 20s, um, goes to Columbia to meet the father that she has never really known. Because uh, when she was a child, um, her parents uh, separated and her mom um, took her from Columbia, where she was born, back to Minnesota, where her mom lived. Um, and her dad refused to leave Columbia or couldn't leave Columbia or didn't feel like the marriage itself was um, worth it. And so he stayed behind. And so she had really only known her father as a kid through these letters that they would write back and forth. And so in her 20s in college, she her and her dad finally invites her to come to Columbia and see him. So she decides to do that. Um, so the whole book is kind of this story about how her parents met uh, the, when they met when her mom was an exchange student in Columbia um, and her father was an older teacher that um, they met and fell in love and got married. But their marriage was like difficult and complicated, as you can imagine, with like so many differences. And so it's about kind of how that fell apart, uh, the choices her mom made to bring her back to Minnesota. And then it's also about her experience visiting her father, what it is like being in Colombia, this place that she feels like she should belong, but she also kind of de like doesn't really at all because she grew up in the Midwest, but she also doesn't totally fit in in the Midwest because she's half Colombian and there's a lot of complications with that in her communities. Um, and so it, uh, it sort of jumps across time and place a lot. Um, there are parts that she is kind of talking about her own memories and like 
that idea, like when you're a kid, like your memories aren't super accurate and kind of what you remember versus what actually happened. Um, there's kind of the story of her parents. Um, there's this kind of fish out of water narrative of the story about her um, time visiting Columbia to visit her dad and just all of that. Um, and so it's really just like a really interesting memoir about family and secrets and um, growing up and being of multiple cultures and trying to understand that. Um, and I have a soft spot for it because she lives in Minnesota. And so I always like books in my home state. So uh, that book is Magical Realism for Nonbelievers, A Memoir of Finding Family by Annika Fajardo. I really like that title. I know, me too. The the cover is really it's beautiful too. It's like these really bright like pinks and purples and greens and sort of like flowy, circly kind of patterns. It's it's really neat. I love it. Wait, I'm Googling it real fast. Oh, it's University of Minnesota Press. It is, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Oh, that is a really good cover. Okay, great. Everyone look up magical realism for non believers <laughs> and tell us how pretty the cover is. Okay. My last pick. Okay, if we're talking about nerdy. Um, I had a I had a different pick for this that I ended up not liking. So I went with this. It is the role of the scroll, an illustrated introduction to scrolls in the Middle Ages by Thomas Forrest Kelly. Now hold hold on. I know that this doesn't sound like the most uh scintillating of any book title ever. Maybe unless you're like, wow, the role of the scroll that rhymes. That's great. Okay, then you're on board already. But it, for those of you who aren't. First of all, this book is basically like, do you like color? Do you like lots of pictures? This book is for you. So this music professor and historian, Thomas Forrest Kelly, is basically like, they had like codexes, like the way that we look at books now. They had that in the medieval period. So what's up with scrolls in the medieval period? And you're like, yeah, what is up with them? So this guy is like a super nerd. He has I just was looking for this sentence that I read, which he says that the 11 a.m. coffee break at the Vatican Library's bar is an international rendezvous, a hub of scholarly exchange. So if you want to read sentences like that, sorry, I read it and I was like, you must be a fun guy. It's got like that kind of thing, which is exciting because how often do people talk that way? It's got lots of photos of scrolls and they all look great. So. You know, it just feels like a different sort of pick for this podcast. And that's the fun of nonfiction, is that occasionally we get to pick books that are illustrated introductions to scrolls in the Middle Ages. So, again, that is The Role of the Scroll by Thomas Forrest Kelly. Oh, that sounds so fun. Yeah. I bet that. Yeah, that sounds great. That is an excellent pick. Thank you for that one. <laughs> My last pick is less, less Delightful and Charming, unfortunately. And it, uh, it is actually a book that I have not gotten to look at at all. I couldn't find uh, an electronic galley to preview. Um, I imagine they're kind of keeping them a little bit close, but I don't know. Uh, the book is called Rise, Fall and Rise, The Story of 9-11 by Mitchell Zuckoff. Um, and this is uh, the story of this, an account of the September 11th attacks uh, that weaves together strands of the event from New York and pe- at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania. So Mitchell Zuckoff was a reporter at the Boston Globe on September 11th. And so he spent months, months and years afterwards writing about the attacks, about the victims and about their families. Um, and so this book is kind of an expansion on all of that reporting and then some a lot of additional work that he's done since trying to tell these stories. Um, and so he really focused. Focuses on as many 
from what I can tell, as many like individual voices as he can to try and tell these stories. And it's got them divided up into um, three different sections. So there's a section that looks at what was happening inside all of the planes. Um, I'll look at what was happening on the ground at all of the sites and then um, reports on the survivors and what has happened to them since. Um, And the description talks about um, just like all of these really different people that were part of these this historic event um or this historic tragedy um an out-of-work actor at the north tower of the world trade center uh heroes board flight 93 a veteran trapped at the pentagon um the fire chief who is uh the first on the scene in pennsylvania um you know firefighters working to save people there and um kind of everyone who was affected by this directly so um again i haven't gotten to read this one or like preview it at all so i'm just um i'm going on the fact that mitchell it sounds like a really interesting book the reviews that i read were good and mitchell zuckoff read he wrote a previous book that i enjoyed a lot um and that was called lost in shangri-la which is a historical book about a world war ii rescue mission in the south pacific um and i thought that one was really well done and so i'm i'm confident that this one is equally as well done um Two things I wanted to note from the reviews that I read, just as kind of an FYI, they mentioned that it doesn't have a lot of commentary about the United States kind of post 9-11. So um, issues about terrorism and civil liberties and those kinds of conversations are not really part of the focus of this book. It's really on that day and the people affected. And then <laughs> the review called it unquestionably depressing at times, which I um, I said that kind of glibly, but I, I think that that's probably uh, apt for a book about the tragedy that has sort of defined the last. 20 years or so. So anyway, the book is called Fall and Rise, The Story of 9-11 by Mitchell Suckoff. Oh, man. You know, I haven't read any books like fiction or nonfiction about 9-11. I know that a lot of people have read, what is that? There's like some big fiction book that came out. Oh, yeah. Um, extremely loud and incredibly close. That's it. Um, yeah, I haven't read that. But honestly, like this, I, I feel like I would maybe read this. So um, thank you for doing that. Yeah, I've read Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close and it gutted me, Um, but I haven't read any nonfiction about it. So that's part of why it stuck out to me too, is it it feels like I know that there have been books about it that I just haven't really been, I just haven't wanted to read. And this one I thought like that, I do. So just a timing thing for me probably. But yeah, good point. Um, All right. So we're going to switch gears and talk about kind of our weekly theme. Uh, And this was my idea, which Alice gamely decided to go along with, even though uh, finding books for it ended up being a little more challenging maybe for both of us than we anticipated. Uh, And so we're going to talk about um, nonfiction about Star Wars because uh, the Saturday after this podcast came out is May 4th, which is Star Wars Day. Uh, May the 4th be with you. And the library system that I work for, there's two different branches that are doing Star Wars Day like family events. Uh, and they just sounded like so fun and got me really in the mood to like think about Star Wars and maybe like watch the movies again and perhaps read some books about it. So that is that's why we picked this one. But you you didn't say anything when I suggested it, but I found out afterwards you were not excited about this one. What? No, it was it wasn't that. It wasn't that I wasn't excited about it. It was that I realized I don't actually know any Star Wars nonfiction, so I had to go in search of it. And as you said, it's weirdly hard to find. Yeah, I am disappointed in the Star Wars community. (laughs) (laughs) I call upon them to rectify this wrong. Um, I did want to ask you, what is one of your early memories of Star Wars? That's a good question. Um, 
I feel like I must have watched the original trilogy with my parents, but the thing that I remember best is going to one of the, um, like the second trilogy, which is the first three movies. I remember going to see those with my whole family. My mom and my dad, my brother and my sister would all go. Um, and we went to all of them in the theater together. And um, I remember like we went out to Arby's after one of them and we were sitting around Arby's like eating our roasty sandwiches and curly fries, like talking through the whole movie and being like, what do you think about this? And what is this about? And like, as a kid, I don't remember registering those kind of second trilogy three movies as being like terrible, even though like I know people have a lot of like bad things to say about them kind of now and maybe at the time. But yeah, I remember seeing those with my family. Oh, I thought you meant the like when they remastered the original trilogy and released it. In no, theater. Oh. no, the ones with Anakin and Padme and all of that. We went to go see those in the theater oh. when I was a kid. Okay. <laughs> Do you have Star Wars memories? Yeah. Well, my dad's an aerospace engineer and my brothers are like sci-fi nerds. So I kind of grew up watching. I saw Spaceballs first, though, which is Mel Brooks's parody <laughs> film of Star Wars. Oh, yeah. So that was a weird experience seeing the thing that it was parodying before seeing – no, sorry, seeing the parody before seeing the thing it was parodying. But yeah, no, I grew up like playing with the Star Wars action figures from the 70s because my oldest brother was born in the 70s. And like, I very much love the original trilogy. I don't really have any feelings about the prequels uh, other than I don't want to watch them again ever. And (laughs) I mean, I really liked The Last Jedi. I hope that doesn't get us any kind of hate mail. I already argued with my girlfriend's brother about that. So he probably made any points anyone wants to make. But yeah, I don't know. It's a yay Star Wars. That's what I have to say. Yes, Star Wars. Excellent. Um, So my first book for uh, discussing this segment is one that I read um, a while ago and I I loved and I like pushed on a bunch of other people because I thought it was really great. And I actually think it's a book that people who are not particular fans of Star Wars will actually find a lot of interesting stuff in them. So uh, the book is called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise by Chris Taylor. Uh, And so this is a book that like basically sets out to answer the question, how did this space fantasy become ubiquitous and one of the most lucrative franchises of all times? So like how did how come Star Wars has become such a part of our collective memory that even people who have never seen the movies know who Yoda is and they understand the reveal about Darth Vader and Luke's relationship and all of that like how did this thing become so popular basically um and so it's just this like meandering kind of encompassing look at the history of Star Wars and the ways that the fans and creators have latched onto the film and made the stories and characters into kind of their own thing And so the book starts with young George Lucas and gives kind of a brief biography of him and talks about his going to school and then the making of the movies. Um, And it ends with speculation about episode uh, seven um, and what that movie was going to be out because it came out just before that. So maybe we'll feel a little bit dated in that respect, but I I still remember really enjoying it. So um, it's a little meandering um he uses kind of that thread of like the the story of the star wars films to go off in a bunch of different directions so he um talks about like the drone the real life drone army legion of stormtroopers um he talks about people who build their own droids he talks about people who believe in jediism as religion and just goes off in all these tangents about star wars and where it's been and the reason i really liked this one is because like george lucas proper is as a person is not super interesting to just me personally but the cultural space that Star Wars takes up is, and that's really what this book is about. It also has some like gossip from behind the scenes at the movies. Um, it's got some kind of commentary and criticism of the films, which I thought is interesting. Um, and it's got, like, I think, a pretty fair assessment of George Lucas as a creator and um, kind of the blind spots that he maybe has in that area. So um, 
yeah, it's just a really interesting book. And I think because it's so much about like sort of the cultural space that Star Wars takes up, I think people who are not particular fans of the movie may like we'll find something interesting in that. Um, so the book is How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise by Chris Taylor. I feel like that dovetails t- dovetails really well with my first pick for our Star Wars section indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're kind of like going into the fans and like the cultural impact. And this is The Making of Star Wars, the definitive story behind the original film by J.W. Rinsler. So this is going like directly into the background and making of the film. And it's like this beautiful, expensive kind of book. So, you know, check your local library. Um, But it talks about how, you know, originally the name was like Anakin Starkiller and that Han Solo was this green skinned monster with no nose and large gills, which actually there is a character like that in Star Wars. But originally, he was Han Solo. So, um, and also, of course, like the many script drafts of George Lucas and how industrial latent magic came to be, um, which is super cool because, of course, they've done so much since then and like just revolutionized Hollywood filmmaking. And um, it also did a lot of interviews with the cast um, before and during production and then like after the release. So, you know, you're, you're encompassing this whole like 1977 time period. Um, so including like George Lucas and Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher, rest her soul, and Sir Alec Guinness, ditto for him. Um, Anthony Daniels, who plays C-3PO, like all of these people, like anyone you were like, oh, I really wanted to hear from them. They're in this. Um, so again, get, I feel like it's a paired set. Read How Star Wars Conquered the Universe and read The Making of Star Wars. Ta-da! Those do sound like they would really go together, yeah, because there's stuff in the first thing the book I mentioned about the movies and the making of, but that's not the particular focus of it. So yeah, very cool. So my second pick is maybe a little bit in the same vein as my first. I'm not sure. Uh, it's called The World According to Star Wars by Cassar Sunstein. Uh, it came out in 2016, and it is a collection of essays on the different lessons that we could learn from Star Wars. So um, it's basically divided into three sections. He titles every chapter as an episode, which is just kind of like nerdy and makes me laugh. Um, so first section is kind of about how George Lucas came up with Star Wars and how it became a big success. So kind of a brief, I would say, history of the Star Wars franchise. The second section is a look at the film's different meanings and some of the kind of arguments they make as a whole about fatherhood, redemption, and freedom. And then the third section is a bunch of uh, a bunch of other different things that Star Wars kind of comments on in different ways. So politics, rebellions, republics, empires, constitutional law, magic, behavioral science, and the force. Uh, and so he just has all of these essays about different aspects of Star Wars and ways to think about it. So I, I got this from the library and I, I have to admit, I skimmed some of the essays that kind of, as I started them, just like didn't feel super relevant to me. Um, but other ones I really liked a lot. Um, there's one in the middle that's called 13 Ways of Looking at Star Wars, or it's it's about 13 Ways of Looking at Star Wars. And it's basically just a crash course in different types of criticism um, and different types of conversations that have happened around the Star Wars franchise, um, which I... I just thought it was really fun because um, when I took my um, criticism class in in college, that was basically what we did is we took a text, Wuthering Heights, and then we looked at all of these different ways of doing uh, English criticism. And then we read the book through those different lenses. And I just thought that was super like a fun way to do it. Um, And so that's kind of what this essay does. And I also, the other thing I like about this book is that he does not avoid talking about the politics of Star Wars. So like all art is political. Um, And even if the message isn't explicit in some way, like 
all all fantasy, all science fiction, all of that stuff is political and stuff like that has light and dark and good and evil and all of the like iconic images of the film like all of those are political statements and so i appreciate that he in these essays talks about what some of those political arguments are um, both the explicit ones and kind of the ones that are implicit or maybe embedded in uh, a closer reading of the films so um i thought this was really interesting it's a really slim little collection it's a small book but um i think packs a lot of thoughts about star wars into it so uh, that is the world according to star wars by Cass R. Sunstein. Oh my gosh. When you said constitutional law as one of the things, <laughs> I had a horrible flashback to the prequels when George Lucas was like, you know what we didn't get enough of in the original trilogy? <laughs> the Senate. Bureaucracy? Like, what about some of that? And yeah, Senate debate. So I, okay, so there's a, there's a quote, and I think it's the worst line in The Phantom Menace. This guy in the parliament or senate or whatever says, would you defer your motion to allow a commission to be sent to assess the validity of your accusations? <laughs> uh, so bad. No one put a note on that. No one was like, maybe rewrite that. <laughs> <laughs> right. On that note, my last pick is, of course, Carrie Fisher's amazing memoir, Wishful Drinking. Um, this is – it was her first memoir she's written to – um, it talks about, you know, her childhood growing up as the daughter of musical theater star Debbie Reynolds and singer Eddie Fisher, who um, is a terrible person. <laughs> I feel like maybe he's passed away. I think he has. Um, but he, of course, cheated on Debbie Reynolds with Elizabeth Taylor and left her when she had two young children. And so her kind of relationship or lack thereof with her father and her complicated relationship with her mother, which she detailed in Postcards from the Edge, which is a great movie and um, and of course becoming Princess Leia at age 19 and like what that was like and simultaneously her um, sort of struggles and then also kind of fondness for alcohol like you know because obviously like if you're addicted you know you but I feel like fondness has this different connotation with it she talks about that like weird balance and then her addiction to drugs her mental breakdowns um, I think she uh, talks about her electroshock therapy I saw her do this on Broadway uh, a number a number of years ago. I don't remember how long. And she ends it with Princess Leia's opening speech that, you know, comes through on R2-D2. And it was like just a moment. Like I sat there with my oldest brother who I like grew up watching those movies with. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is happening now. So she like, you get that feeling when you're reading the book. Like she has this um, weird relationship with Star Wars that also, like, you know, this affection for it. So, um, and it talks about just her very long tenure with Star Wars. So, um, yeah, Wishful Drinking. Check it out. Yeah, and I will also give a shout out to her second memoir, which is The Princess Diarist, uh, which is the one that I have read. I've read. I actually listened to it on audiobook because that's the perfect way to do it. Um, and that one is very much about her experience on the Star Wars films. Um, she discovers as in a, like the journals that she kept during the filming of Star Wars. Uh, and so she just like everything she was feeling in 1977 as this like young actress who like didn't know what was happening but also had this like incredible crush on her co-star Harrison Ford and all of this stuff and so Princess Diarist is partially these diary entries of like who she was at that moment and then herself looking back on them and kind of giving them context and also sharing other stories and stuff so both of her memoirs are excellent and so fun and so uh, with that I think that is the end of our discussion of some Star Wars nonfiction. 
Oh, Anthony Daniels. I wanted to mention his thing. Sorry, oh, yeah. I was going to mm-hmm. interrupt you. There are actually a number of Star Wars books coming out, which uh, just keep an eye out for. So one is Anthony Daniels' memoir in November, I Am C-3PO, The Inside Story. Oh, I get it because he's inside it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just realized that. Okay. And then the other one <laughs> is, uh, I think this comes out in maybe June. This is Star Wars Meets the Eras of Feminism, Weighing All the Galaxies, Women, Great and Small. That one also looks really good. So, okay. Now now our Star Wars section is officially uh, over. Excellent. I'm glad you mentioned that other one because, yeah, I think a feminist take on Star Wars is going to be super interesting. Like, cast. Sunstein gets into that like a teeny, teeny bit in the world according to Star Wars, but I know there's like a ton more there. And so that is awesome. Um, Cool. So with that, we will wrap up the podcast as we usually do with what we are reading uh, right at this very moment. Uh, And so right now I... I just got a book. I feel like I say this every single week is I just got a book out from the library that I'm so excited to start. Uh, But that is true. Again, uh, the book I'm excited about is The Electric Woman by Tessa Fontaine, which is a memoir um, about a woman who joins a traveling sideshow. And she uh, while she's there, she's an escape artist. She's a snake charmer. And she's also this um, character or this called High Voltage Electra. Uh, So it's a book about carnival life, but also mothers and daughters and family and all that stuff. And the reason I got it out from the library, it came out last year. And I think I think I maybe recommended it on the podcast or one of us talked about it. But um, the reason I got it is because when it came out, I recommended it to a friend who was looking for interesting memoirs. And I had heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, and she just sent me a Facebook message this week that she read it and she loved it. And so uh, I was like, well, gosh, I better pick that up and read it now too. So um, hopefully I will get to read this one before it's due back at the library. We'll see. Uh, that is The Electric Woman by Tessa Fontaine. That is very different than what I am currently reading. So um, I am reading, without precedent, John Marshall and His Times by Joel Richard Paul. And the reason that I'm reading it is because he was a guest on the Age of Jackson podcast, which I've talked about on this show before. It's really, really good if you like hearing scholars interviewed about their work about America in the 1830s. And so in episode 23, he talks like uh, Joel Richard Paul talks about John Marshall and he's so he's like this like quiet man who also says these extremely like stirring inspirational things about like America and the like law versus justice and all of his stuff where I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read that book. So um, he did a great job as his as being the interviewee. And um, if you want to learn about, um, I'm just going to turn this into a recommendation. If you want to learn about John Marshall, because you should, he's a complicated person, but also like a very practical, rational person who fought for like the betterment of America. And um Joel Richard Paul, I recommend that. It's it's Age of Jackson, episode 23. Um, at the very end, he kind of talks about the current state of our country and, um, you know, how there's like kind of this – it can be a, feel a little despairing sometimes, but – he talks about like looking to history and how like if we are like innovative and you know like try to like really just be our best then we eventually like get out of these sorts of times um if we look to the past and to what people did then so um it was just a very inspirational episode so i wanted to read without precedent about john marshall so, and with that, we will close out this episode. You can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Uh, and if you feel so inclined, please go to iTunes and give us a rating and review. Uh, those help us help people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so that you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, and so with that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>